Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Originally a founding member of the band Pyramid, this next composer is a longtime collaborator with Jody Hill, Danny McBride, and David Gordon Green. Having written music for The Foot Fist Way, Flower, Observe and Report, Vice Principles, Eastbound and Down, and The Righteous Gemstones, his unique intimate scoring approach, whether using band instruments, drum lines, or analog synths, has kept him very, very busy, so I'm glad he could take some time out of his schedule today to be a guest. And the composer is Joseph Stevens. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? Doing pretty well. So Joseph, uh, it seems like you've gone into this like really cool comedy scene, um, and obviously you've, you've done a lot, but I just wanted to ask, what were your favorite comedies growing up on TV or in films? Huh. Comedies? I, I don't know. I didn't really, uh, I don't know that I really was that into comedy as a preference over other, I was into horror more probably. Um, I mean, I was like a big Michael J. Fox fan. So like Back to the Future, you know, Family Ties, that kind of thing. You know, Steve Martin. I remember listening to old Steve Martin records when I was a kid um, that my parents had, like stand-up records where he plays banjo, you know, all that old classic Steve Martin stuff. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know that I really gravitated as much towards comedy. Eddie Murphy, I remember Raw. <laughs> I loved that. Um, Simpsons. <laughs> gotcha. And so did you grow up in North Carolina or did you go to go to school there? I grew up, yes. I grew up in North Carolina and went to college there. Is North Carolina like much of a musical city or sorry, musical place? It has a lot, yes. I and mean, Chapel Hill is a big music hub. Merge Records is there. There's a lot of indie bands that you know base themselves in that location. Asheville gets a lot. Charlotte gets a decent amount. It's a little it's probably a little less, a little less hip. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely a music scene, and there's always, you know, big acts coming through. Uh, it's easy to get, you know, most bands come through town, so it's it's got a good scene, yeah, for sure. Were you going to a lot of shows in um, in high school? High school a bit, yeah. I, I remember sneaking out and going to, I, I grew up in a town called High Point, and so I went to clubs in Greensboro, which is a neighboring town, and would go see indie bands. I guess before indie was a term, but like there's a band called Geezer Lake. It's like this old, this old, kind of, this old rock band with a trumpet player in it. It was, uh, I haven't thought about them in forever. It was loud and and, and kind of angry and, and super weird. Uh, yeah, I would go to clubs when, when I could. You know, I was underage, so it was hard to get into some things. I didn't go that often, I suppose, but I, you know, I certainly discovered a live music in high school, more so, much more so in college just going to clubs whenever we could, and, uh, festivals, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you've been playing music, I guess, through middle school too? Yeah. I started on trumpet in, uh, in middle school and then switched over to classical guitar at the end of middle school and then didn't play anything with uh, or- orchestral type instruments at all after that. And then uh, high school just got into rock guitar and wanted to be in a band and kind of abandoned all the classical teachings and went more towards Jimmy Page and Slash and, you know, rock guitar stuff. 
Did you ever see uh, Guns N' Roses live around that time? I did. I did. I saw them on the uh, the tour for uh, <laughs> Use Your Illusion. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Definitely impactful. It was my first rock concert. Wow. Like first big one, you know, like outside of like a like national rock band. That was definitely the first one. I remember bringing my parents to a Guns N' Roses show when it was Axel's band at a Terminal 5 in New York and not realizing it, one, it would be a three and a half hour show on a Sunday <laughs> starting at midnight too. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, it was par for the course uh, at that time in in the '90s when I saw them. It was um, they went on like an hour and a half late or something like that, and I went with my uncle, and it was epic. You know, it was just like a giant rock show, super loud, and it was these were like I had posters of those guys on my wall in high school, you know, and growing up, and so it was pretty special to see them in person, you know, and kind of feel like I'm in the same room as them. You know, so. Around that time, did you play in bands? Did you go into college like wanting to just be a pro rock guitar player? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I was, <laughs> uh, I was definitely in bands in high school. I was in a couple. Um, you know, we didn't do much. I recorded a bunch on four tracks more than I played in a band. So I had like a lot of home recordings and things that I was kind of discovering on my own throughout uh, high school. I gravitated more towards acoustic guitar and kind of a more intimate style creatively for myself and have a bunch of four-track recordings. And uh, I, I guess I gravitated away from the band at that point. Um, and then college was in other bands, different different kind of setup, a different style of music, more experimental and uh, instrumental and more on the, I guess, soundtrack sort of filmic side. And yeah, I mean, I've always been a part of bands, but you know, nothing that famous. I'm not a part of any band that's uh, super well-known, you know, not a lot of record sales or ticket sales. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a bit of touring, though, with Pyramid, right? A little bit, yeah. I was in a band in, in, in college, at the end of college, and more so after college, for sure, uh, it's band Pyramid, and we did tour more regionally. I think the furthest we went was Sundance. We played a show at Sundance, and we toured there and back, but then we went to New York and stuff. So it was, um, we got around, but it wasn't like a heavy touring schedule. We were like an eight-piece band and had a bunch of equipment, and so it was kind of tough, uh, or so, so it seems. Um, but yeah, some touring. Mm -hmm. And I know you met Jody Hill and Danny in college. How did that come about? Uh, well, a mutual friend. Um, I had a buddy that went to uh, that I went to high school with that I was friends with in college, and he transferred to the same school that Danny and Jody went to. And we were my buddy and I were in a band. And when he transferred over, I would go to that neighboring school and we I formed we formed a band with some guys at that college. And you know, I just met some of the guys. You know, that my mutual friend was getting to know. And so I didn't truthfully know Danny that well in college. I'd met him a few times and I knew Jody a little more, but I got to know them more after college when we made the Foot Fist Way and some of the things that, you know, we created after afterwards just by staying connected to them. Yeah. And the Foot Fist Way as someone who was forced into Taekwondo lessons as a kid, I just thought was hysterical. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so is it, yeah, do you, do you find it that it was uh, accurate? Uh, I find it was... Uh, in terms of depicting the dojos and the uh, the teachers? And... I don't remember um, a teacher hitting on any of the students. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. Um, were they making like comedy sketches too around that time? Um, what do you mean? Were they making like... I don't know. Were they doing like student films or did you see anything before the Foot Fist Way? Yeah, so... In college, um, I scored a couple. It helps a, a couple buddies out with film scores. I was in a film school too. That was a neighboring in a neighboring town, so we all had that kind of music slash film connection. 
School of the Arts, where those guys went, was more centered and more focused on uh, the filmmaking side of things and less of the academics. And so they constantly made films. And so I saw all of their student films. They were all over the place. Some were funny, some were, you know, trying to be dramatic, and others were takes on uh, kind of reality television kind of thing. They, they were all experimenting with lots of kinds of genres and different uh, films. Yeah, it was across the board. Were there any of those early uh, experiments that like really stood out to you? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my buddy Ben made one, uh, this, this kind of David Lynch type film that was like, uh, or that was the take, at least we had like kind of, it felt David Lynch to me. Uh, yeah, I think Danny made one that, that felt like Spielberg related. It was, it was about these kids uh, that were like kid action heroes, I think, or something like that. Not action heroes, but they were, it was like a kid action film. Uh, I very much had a Spielberg kind of vibe to it, at least in my memory. Those are the two that stand out, I guess. So from there, it kind of seems like a natural progression. Foot Fist Way does, I mean, were you expecting it to do as well as it did? Well, we obviously had a ball making it. I mean, Danny is just hilarious all the time. And so it's we weren't surprised. I don't think that it was, that it got somewhere, that it was going to have some sort of effect. Um, when Will Ferrell and his crew got involved, that was definitely surreal. And it uh, just to see him take off after that, from that point forward and then after that, it was was a pretty amazing. We didn't know, you know, if it was going to play out um, in any kind of market or have any kind of like exposure. Uh, so when Sundance came around, that was like, that was huge. And, you know, we all went to Sundance and we all uh, like a giant crew, it's probably like 50 people or something, 30 people that all rented a house and we stayed in a, one, one place for the most part, I think it was maybe two, uh, but it was just like a ball, you know, it's a big party. Uh, we just had, some, we just were having fun, you know, we didn't really think too much about the future or where where it might lead. I mean, maybe I think at that once Sundance and Will Ferrell started getting involved, we obviously started thinking more and more about that. So I'm sure Danny and Jody much more than myself. Um, but at the time, we just knew we were doing something that made our made us laugh, and so we were just happy to do that and get it done, and you know, kind of know that we were able to uh, complete it. You know, like have it. You know, commit to it and and execute the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Was that the or had you done other like feature length projects at that time? No. Wow. No, not before Footfist Way. Well, I mean, we, I think I'd been a part of projects that were, you know, contributing music in some way. You know, that that was the first kind of project we were kind of like in control of the music. It was my it was my band Pyramid and another band Dynamite Brothers that did a lot of music for that as well. So it wasn't just me, um, but yeah, it was certainly the one where uh, we were responsible for the music, you know, more so than other things in our past. And it was feature length, so it was a fair amount of music. Did you study out of film scoring specifically or just composition in school? Like, did you write music to picture for that project? For Foot Fist Way, we did, yes. Uh, there were some to picture and some that wasn't. It was a combination. There's some kind of fake songs. So there was stuff in there that was supposed to sound like it was lifted out of some you know obscure 80s movie. And so we would write like parts of songs and and use it as score. So it sounds kind of like needle drops, but they're customized to the film. But no, I wasn't trained and I didn't go to any kind of like, you know, music academy or write to picture at all in college. I mean, I was always a film buff, you know, and a music buff. And so I was, I understood how music worked on a lot of levels. You know, growing up in the 80s, music is, has a certain weight to a lot of films that are super iconic. And well, like every decade, I guess, but, you know, it was, I was, I guess I paid attention to that and, and knew what, uh, what I liked and what worked, you know, in, in a, on a certain level. And then as I went to college and was studying film, 
been writing for film and stuff, I was learning more about it, you know, without even trying to, I guess, you know, I'm just enjoying talking about and and learning about movies and getting, like, learning about Scorsese and how he uses songs and lack of score, more songs, uh, and how that can have an effect that's just as good as a custom score that's, that's bespoke to the actual picture. So I learned a lot of stuff, you know, in college that I still draw from now, but it wasn't per se a specific conservatory that I'm studying music for film. Well, that almost sounds like a a unique advantage that you had just because you understood film from a filmmaker's perspective in terms of story. Maybe, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, who knows? (laughs) I think um, it's hard for me to imagine um, composers out there that do this for film that never really wanted to do it for film. Maybe sometimes they kind of fell into it or the opportunities arose and they, you know, excelled at it once that opportunity arose. But it, it's hard to imagine people that do it that don't have a love for a film, you know, more than anything, really. I mean, obviously music is a huge part of it, especially for what I do, but it's like a, it's a team effort. You know, it's all at all. The music works on levels only when they interact with what you're watching or how, you know, what you're feeling on screen. So unless you're listening to the scores by themselves, it needs a lot of the visual is, you know, what's happening visually. So for me, coming from a love of music and to kind of studying cinematography and writing I mean, to a certain degree, I'm sure that informs uh, a lot of what I do. I mean, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I write has a certain kind of visual quality. Um, at least it does to me. So uh, you stayed in North Carolina, right? You're currently there? Yes. Um, did you ever have any idea about moving to, to LA, New York, any of the other hubs? Early on, it was it was more on the table than it is now. I mean, I think that as I've made more connections and um, been able to work from a remote location, it sort of served me well. I, you know, I, I'm able to have a, a larger space uh, around me, um, just real estate wise. You know, it's more effective, more cost effective. You know, with the internet, you can kind of do anything these days. Uh, I go out to LA pretty frequently, um, and so I basically like almost once a month. And so if there's a, especially if there's jobs, you know, that require me to be there, then I just, I make it very well known that if you need me there, I'll be there. So I don't, don't let, I I try not to let the distance become a factor in any way. Um, And so far it hasn't, you know, I'm able to function and, you know, get, you know, significant work and sort of on my terms in in a way. And, you know, as long as that's still happening, then I'm less inclined to make the move out there just for um, a variety of reasons. Whenever I'm out there, I definitely, you know, feel creative. So it's it's tough to say whether or not it would be a good move or not. I've been pretty happy not doing it. <laughs> um, but like I say, I go out there whenever I'm needed and, you know, make the trip as if I'm living there. So if I need to go out for a meeting or a spotting session or recording session, then I just book a flight. I, they're direct flights, so I can get out there in you know, a matter of hours and running against the time zone uh, makes it easier to get there. You know, I could leave 10 a.m. or 7 a.m. here and get there before anyone's even at work. I think that's amazing that you, because um, I, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of uh, a stigma that you need to be in L.A. to have a successful career as a composer. Well, I think that it does help on a lot of levels. You know, there's certainly there's a lot of face time that um, people are going to want. I mean, I guess I'm lucky in a sense because I also have a lot of connections that aren't in L.A. either. So like, uh, you know, Righteous Gemstones, they shot all of that in South Carolina and Essentially, the entire Roughhouse production lives in South Carolina, and so everything they do is is based in the South. And Halloween and Vice Principals, Eastbound and Down, we, that all was shot around here. And so I think going into the business with those connections already in place gave me a bit of a leg up. Uh, a lot, a lot of guys that that live there without the connections that try to make the connections, um, it can be a good thing to be there. You know, it could be 
that can be very beneficial. And also with mentoring and tutoring and you know, working with other composers and getting jobs in the business that isn't necessarily uh, the composer job, but you, it's, it's easier to work your way up, I'm sure, once you're out there and, and getting in the mix and meeting people uh, all the time. I guess I feel pretty lucky to to have connections that have led to other connections. So I've sort of broadened my uh, Rolodex of contacts. And I mean, they're all over. There's, they're LA, New York, Texas, um, East Coast, um, South Carolina. It's It's kind of all over the place, Seattle. So, I mean, I feel lucky in that sense. But yeah, I think that there are benefits to being there for sure. <laughs> yeah. And what is it about, I guess, like the people who who keep recommending you? What do you think that you've done well that makes people, one, want to work with you uh, over and over again and to want to even recommend you to others? I don't really know. <laughs> I guess I'm probably pretty easy to work with on a certain level. I, uh, I don't have an uh, aggressive uh, personality. You know, there are a lot of creative types that can be sometimes difficult to work with. And I think I'm pretty easygoing. And I think that helps. Um, and I think that some of the guys that I've worked with in the past, I think that they inherently have a reputation and just uh, by association, there's probably some sort of, you know, bleed that that sort of lends itself to me. And so I, I get a little boost just from working with Danny McBride and David Green, you know, there's just that, that comes with something probably. Um, and I'm pretty fast and you know, I can, I can work pretty quickly. Uh, I like what I do. And so it's, it's easy just to commit to something and just kind of get really, you know, involved and really immersed. And, and I have a lot of stuff around me. So I'm able to, I can play a lot of instruments. I can, I can turn things around quick. I think that's helped me in the past for some of the television work. I also enjoy challenges. You know, I get outside of my box a lot with a lot of the projects that I do. So it's, um, I enjoy taking on new challenges, like with vice principals, with all of the drum lines and gemstones with some of the choir and vocal work and yeah, just different palettes of music or different styles of score. I don't really have a fear about uh, taking projects on. So I'm, I'm always looking for something that'll push me in, you know, a little further. I don't know that people talk about that when they look to hire me though. So I don't know um, how, how that affects my reference uh, or how that is received or given. Yeah. I'm mentioning vice principals. I think it's, I mean, obviously the drumline's so integral to that score, but then it is very synth heavy for the most part. Oh yeah, it's very uh, Carpenter horror. It's like uh, Halloween and The Thing and all of those kind of basic, but super effective, iconic uh, Carpenter scores was definitely the inspiration for all the synth stuff. Yeah, we wanted it. I think Danny and I have a love for that. A lot of people do have a love for that, the 80s genre of synthy scores and supervised principles having it take place in a high school kind of, it was fun for us to explore the music that we listened to when we were in high school, making a show about a high school. Or was, I guess it was a junior high. Was it a junior high? Um, anyway, uh, yeah, he heavy synths. It was fun to, to dive into that. I acquired a bunch of equipment and just kind of dove in. I just loved it. And, you know, I was, a, I was a synthesizer fan anyway. I had certain pieces to my studio already in place, but after Vice Principals, I definitely acquired a lot um, just to, you know, find new territory, new sounds that felt vintage and less reproduced. So it was a super joy. Yeah, it was like a dream job for sure. I mean, they just kind of let me sit back and I just made a bunch of crazy, you know, dark synthy music. A lot of that score was done before there was any picture. And so I just sat back as they're writing and as they were filming, just started stockpiling, you know, minutes and minutes and minutes of different synth scores. Um, 
And then they kind of edited around those pre-existing pieces a lot of times. Season two, uh, that was more custom to picture. But yeah, season one, there's a lot of stuff that's just me experimenting and they just used it. Well, I guess that just speaks to your ability to, uh, I don't know, to write visually and what you said earlier about I don't know, trying to even like, craft the scene just with the music. I think it helps also knowing Danny so well and the, the crew around that production, just knowing what they want. You know, I was in touch with them early on. I had an idea of where they wanted to go with it. And so it was it was fun just to kind of run with the idea and see where it would go from there. Yeah, I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about the, uh, the score you did for Flower, because that one comes up a lot as temp for me, for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. Um, what was it like uh, working on that movie? It was fun. So that's uh, Max Winkler, the director. It was, uh, he was a ball. I mean, it was, it was another kind of a dreamy job where it was, uh, I just wrote a bunch of stuff before I saw the picture just, and then kind of get in the, in the headspace that Max was looking for the film to go. And he had this whole, um, kids getting into trouble, risky business vibe that he wanted the score to represent. So it was, it was kind of similar in the eighties vibe or the synth vibe, relying on synthesizers to get that sort of nostalgic feel that he wanted. And that kind of like heisty kids, um, kids getting into trouble. And so that's the sense kind of got us there. I tried to take it a little further with making it a little more dreamy and, and kind of making it more modern. So it wasn't um, specifically as, you know, specifically specific to the 80s, like Vice Principals was, which we were very much trying to make it feel as almost as authentic as possible, at least for season one and a lot of season two. But for Flower, we kind of used that idea as a springboard and wanted to explore some of some other things like, you know, piano and some of the other kind of dreamy aspects of it. Yeah, it was definitely fun. I listened to it the other day. I was putting some reel together and listened to a bunch of those uh, cues. And it's, I'm super proud of it for sure. It's funny you mentioned that with the synths because I actually, in a weird way, felt like it was more similar to what you did on Eastbound and Down in terms of like the more emotional cues. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was definitely... Um, Less comedic, for sure. I mean, there's more dramatic stuff happening in that score than stuff for Vice Principals. Um, but it's funny, yeah, like uh, some of the Eastbound stuff, when I think back to that, I always think of guitar-based stuff for the most part. You know, it has that kind of Southern, kind of Black Keys, White Stripe vibe. <laughs> like, shouldn't connect those two, but uh, you know what I mean? It's It's got that that kind of rock and roll, rock and drum, guitar and drums, um, audacious in your face kind of vibe. Uh, we explored some other genres for sure. Uh, but yeah, when I, in, in my head or heart, that's how it, that score is remembered. Yeah, I guess right here before we get to the last segment, I mean, you have three incredible shows out right now, Righteous Gemstones, Never Have I Ever, and Upload. You just first off, what was it like? I assume a lot of these schedules kind of overlapped. They all did. Yeah, I basically did all those at once. Um, Gemstones was Gemstones was wrapping up as those other two were starting. Um, so I was already mixing Gemstones when I was first getting spotting sessions for Upload. And never have I ever kind of happened a little, maybe a little bit after Upload started to happen, but they definitely were, you know, I was doing them both at the same time. Um, They're very different, so that helped. You know, they're like, never have I ever is super synth-based. It's very... Not kind of light. I mean, there's a lot of dramatic stuff in there. It's kind of more similar to Flower, if anything. But then uh, Upload is is more organic, and it has more of a kind of a narrative arc to the score. So it's ideally sounds like one thing in the beginning, and then it kind of evolves into something else by the end of the episode or season. So they're just very different. So it's it kind of easy to to go back and forth. They're very different kinds of shows too. So I wasn't 
I was constantly on my toes and kind of inspired uh, every time I would sit down to, to work. And so that made it easy. I think if they had been super similar, that would have been it would have been a different experience for sure if the shows had been too similar to one another. Yeah, and on Gemstones, obviously the song uh, Misbehavin' is, I mean, I don't know if you expected it to have the fans clamoring with demands to get it on Spotify and iTunes. Um, no, I mean, we didn't expect that much of a reaction. I think that once it was, once the song was written, we knew that it was something that we were pretty proud of and excited to get out to the world. Um, like, I don't think we expected quite as much of the sort of semi-viral effects that have happened and merchandising and people covering the song and different karaoke videos that people see kids like videos of I get like people send me videos of their kids dancing to the song like total strangers you know so it's it's been pretty surreal uh for sure it's been a wild ride super fun so the natural next question is when are you guys gonna do a musical film (laughs) i don't know i mean there's gonna be more music in uh season two for gemstones they're they're wanting to push that um more that that aspect of season one we want to kind of push that a little further it's not definitely not a musical but um i don't know i've never uh i never thought about it i'm not so oh, there's i definitely never thought about it there's there's a project that i was involved with a few years ago that never happened where i had to write a bunch of songs that w- we were going to try to reach out to jim neighbors to sing these songs like these big kind of like uh almost like Wizard of Oz orchestration, like really sweeping old, sounds like sounds like it's from the like 50s kind of uh, score with these songs that were going to um, bookend the film and then there's going to be like a, a tune in the middle that would all kind of like, almost like be a, narr- a narrative, like the vocals for the song are going to sort of narrate what you're watching. Um, it wasn't a musical per se, but it was a pretty ambitious idea. And we were going to initially reach out to Jim Neighbors to try to get him to sing it or someone of that, that ilk, uh, someone with like, you know, deep pipes and like, a you know, just a great voice. Uh, so it's not me singing or someone that's uh, pretending to be another kind of singer. Uh, we wanted to go out to someone established that was going to perform this, but that movie never happened. So unfortunately, uh, at least yet. Well, it's still possible you might have your uh, Danny McBride Kanye movie coming up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, that would be a weird score. I guess I'm sure he would have some part in that score. I would, I would think. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't get to meet him. I mean, there wasn't uh they didn't invite me to that meeting. <laughs> um, yeah, I bet that's, uh, I'm sure he's a fun guy. Well, we just have the, uh, the last segment here for the podcast. This is called Tech Talk. It's a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. So the first one we got here is delay pedals. I use them often. I have a bunch of them behind me. I have a variety of delay pedals. I'm a kind of a pedal hoarder so whenever new things come out i um explore them um yeah there's a lot of the stuff on flower has a lot of delay uh pedals um as well as never have ever i had a rig that i ran pedals into pedals and just would tweak them constantly yeah i'm I'm big into them any that you sync to uh to your daw no i don't it's all kind of uh well i mean i have a lot of plugins as well and so most of the synced based delays are all uh I mean, I'll use tap tempo, you know, so I, I can, you know, make it work on certain levels. But I don't, I don't really ever run. Yeah, I don't sync the pedals themselves to the session tempo. A lot of times, I use them in conjunction with others just to create sort of like an ambient bed. And so it's less about one particular kind of delay. It's it's about the way it's interacting with other delays. And so the tempo itself is can feel pretty random. 
But when it's mixed in with other instruments and other tempos that are established by the other instruments, then it creates its own kind of layer that is sort of um, ignorant to the, the tempo of the particular piece, but adds texture that wouldn't be achievable if it were so perfectly in sync. Next, we got DAW. Pro Tools. Yep, I use Pro Tools. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I've, I've, it's the only one I've ever used. I, I, I worked with Cakewalk in college and um, some of the precursors to Pro Tools, but it's the only one I kind of grew up using it in, from the band side of things and have used it ever since. It would be interesting to, to explore other DAWs, but I just there's a learning curve that I just kind of don't really want to deal with. And until Pro Tools becomes some sort of obstacle to me, and then I'm just going to, yeah, I know it very well. So it's it's uh, it's fast for me and it's reliable. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy with it. Next here we got drum kit. I have uh, I have an old uh, kit here. It's an old Gretsch kit from the '60s. Uh, that's the kit that I have. Um, but then when I bring in drummers, sometimes they bring in their drums. Or if I go to studios, I'll use drum kits there. I don't have a specific kit other than the one that I have here. Uh, so I use all kinds of drums. I'm going to have a bunch of toys um, with percussion. And like I said, when I bring guys in, they bring toys. And so I'm big into, uh, like with a lot of vice principals, I had recording sessions with various ensembles of percussionists where I would just give them tempos or give them certain pieces that are like rudimentary kind of tonal clicks that they could listen to. So they're in sync with each other and just let them go nuts and just record everything and then go back in and and edit and you know slice pieces and use certain pieces and to try to find like you know moments that I wouldn't normally be able to achieve by myself playing drums or if I were actually in the room saying play this play that um so I did that a lot for um yeah for vice principles I do it a lot in general just as like a it's it's helpful to me to have kind of beds of percussion that are real but also um, can I take me out of my own headspace because they're making decisions or making choices uh, musically that I wouldn't necessarily make. And so that kind of leads me in different directions when I'm using some of these little bits. It's all, it's all pretty minimal. You know, it's all, you know, a couple guys like playing various size percussion pieces. I mean, it kind of makes sense too. just uh, coming from the band days. It's like a fun thing when your drummer starts playing a groove and then you get inspired because of that. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll go, when I have recording sessions, I'll have the drummer just kind of give me a bed. So I'll just like give him different tempos and just have him do a variety of beats um, just to have them. Um, and then I can go back in and, you know, use them as like full on, you know, drum rock beats, you know, different like click tracks, you know, that I can that I can use instead of using a lot of software sample based drums that are out there. I have a lot of that stuff too, but it's always good to, you know, inject as much human interaction as possible. And then we got two left, analog synths. Uh, I have a bunch. I've got a bunch of Dave Smith stuff, a Prophet and the uh, Oberheim. I've got an old uh, Juno. There's this company called Make Noise that's from North Carolina that makes all this modular synth equipment. And I have a bunch of that. Uh, I have... As you're deep into the modular then. Not really. I haven't. I mean, I'm getting into it more. <laughs> I use it. I use it on Flower. I'm, I'm sorry, not Flower. Uh, never have I ever. Uh, it's still. I'm still getting my my uh, my bearings uh, for a lot of the modular stuff. But yeah, I have some Moog stuff uh, or Moog, uh, and then I have uh, this old roll. I got this old Roland um, rack synth. I can't remember the name of the model number, um, but it's just like from the '80s, and it just has all these like these vintage sounds. Uh, I've got an old Korg M1 Matrix 1000. 
from Oberheim. <laughs> right. Well, you just reminded me that North Carolina is a huge synth place, I guess, just with... Yeah, Moog Music is based in Asheville, and this company, Make Noise, is also based in Asheville. Uh, they have like a big... Moog has a... I think they're the ones that do the big synth festival once a year where they have... Yeah, Moogfest. Yeah, Moogfest. Um, yeah, it's, it's odd, because that's like a mountain town with a lot of, you know, it's, it's by itself. It's not a metropolis by any means. And it doesn't seem, from the outside, it wouldn't appear to be like a mecca of creative electronic music because <laughs> it's so woodsy, for lack of a better word. It's great food up there too. <laughs> uh, and yeah, last one here, he's got plug-in synths. Plug-in synths. Um, the UE, UE guys are awesome. I uh, use those a bit. Omnisphere. One of the big ones. I mean, there's Spitfire stuff for that's not really synth based. Um, I mean, U, UE is, I guess, I, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a U dash H E UE. Um, those are the ones that I go to the most, I guess. Uh, a lot of it's hardware based. I, I started off with a lot of sample based libraries for synths, but gravitated more towards the hardware stuff for certain kinds of applications, like some of the pads that are created by the, these um, synth. Sample-based synths are just unreal, um, and it's it's easy to get to them. So I use them a lot, just out of like uh, you know speed necessity. But yeah, it's a good combination. I mean, a lot of the punchy stuff that I use, like baselines and some of the I guess more like cutting synth sounds, are used with the hardware. But yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of what are some other obscure ones that I have. They're all the kind of standards, I, I think. Oh, do you want to tell everyone what you have going on? What shows are out? What's coming up? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, never have I ever an upload of the two big ones that just happened last week. Um, and they seem to be doing what they seem to be doing well. Um, one's on Amazon, uploads on Amazon, never have I ever is on Netflix. Gemstone uh, season two is going to happen. Uh, we're working on that. Although it's, everything's kind of on hold now with uh, quarantining. But I also did a film called um, Don't Tell a Soul, which is this uh, thriller kind of drama, more, dra- more drama than thriller, um, that was at Tribeca, but Tribeca got canceled. And so uh, it's going to have some other kind of release now at this point. I'm not really sure. Uh, that's a feature. Um, and then we've got some other feelers out for other things. So I've sent out reels somewhat often and you know, always on the lookout for a, a fit that's good. Amazing. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.